Well, have you ever been lost? Not where in Lowe's do they keep the toilet seats lost, but where, but I'm so lost that God doesn't even know where I am lost. That kind of lost. Now, when I was 16, we went to, um, I went to the country of Panama with my church, and one of the things we did was we got into a bus and we drove three hours out into the Panamanian jungle, and then we got out of the bus and we hiked three more hours into the Panamanian jungle, and we were a long way from anywhere or anything. And we were there to spend a few days working with a native Panamanian tribe that a missionary had planted a church with. And so we spent a great few days serving them, serving alongside them, sleeping in the jungle, hanging out. It's a great time. And, and so after those few days, we began to hike out of the jungle. And on the hike out, I was having a really good conversation with my friend Theron. And as we were talking, our pace slowed and the people in front of us slowly got further and further away to where they weren't visible. But it didn't seem like a big deal because there's one trail, right? It's, we're in the middle of nowhere. And there's twists and turns, so we don't think we're that far away from them. But we keep walking, and then I see something that I did not see on the way in. That out in the middle of the Panamanian jungle, in the middle of nowhere, I see a giant cow tied to a tree. Which meant that either someone has brought this cow from the middle of, of, into the middle of nowhere in the last two days, or we're lost, and we're not where we were before. And so I, I begin thinking, I, I think we're lost, but I don't remember where we made the wrong turn. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but the further we go, the further I'm convinced we are lost. And so I did what any lost person does. I kept walking in the wrong direction. See, if you were paying attention while we were reading scripture a few minutes ago, you were offended. And if you weren't offended, you weren't paying attention. Because what Paul says is that no one is righteous. No one does good. No one seeks God. And you have to think, isn't Paul just being a little bit dramatic there? I mean, with all the religious expression there is in the world, with all the religious practice, with all the charitable deeds and, and good things we try to do for, for each other, how can Paul say that no one is righteous, that no one seeks God, that no one does good? Really? No one's righteous? No one does good? Well, you see, you have to understand, Paul has gotten to this place in Romans 3 by building his case, slowly, meticulously, argument on argument, to where he could say there is not a single person in the whole world who can stand before God and say they're good. No one. And he does this in Romans 1 through 3 by pointing out two lies that we believe. A lie we tell ourselves, a lie we believe about God, and then finally, he's going to get to the shocking truth. So let's look at Romans 3 under those three headings. First, the lie we tell ourselves. And the lie we tell ourselves is essentially this. That I'm good enough on my own. And, and there's really two ways to try and be good enough on your own. The first way is an irreligious way. To live as if there is no God. To, to make your own standards. To live your own way. To, to not let anyone else direct or decide how you should live your life. But just be true to yourself. To live as if there's no God. It's an irreligious way to live life. And what Paul does all through Romans 1 is unpack what it means to live that life. 
And it's a dark picture. It's a grim picture. And he goes into detail of the sexual sin that defined the Roman culture, of their greed, of their maliciousness, of their hatefulness. He lays a stark picture of a broken, morally decaying culture. And if we listen, it probably sounds familiar to our own culture. Now, our culture, like Roman culture, is full of, of sexual sin. That we use sex now as a means of personal fulfillment, as a means to live the way that I want to live. And so if you want to have sex with someone of the same gender, go ahead. If you want to have sex with your girlfriend and she gets pregnant, just give her money for an abortion. And if she doesn't want to have an abortion, well, don't ab- then, then you can abandon her and the child because sex is for you, not for them. It's not your fault there's a baby now. Or that our culture, like Roman culture, is, is full of greed. That you turn on the news and it doesn't take long to see Ponzi schemes, greedy politicians, people using their own power for their own ends to get more powerful and to get more money. Or that our culture, like Roman culture, is often very hostile to Christian faith. That our schools or our universities are often marked by a hostility, that it can be hard to be a Christian in in those settings. Or just being around some of your friends or some of your families can often be a very hard experience because we have a culture that, as Paul says in Romans 1, does not acknowledge God. And we could go on and on about that, right? There's plenty of examples. We could keep going on and on about how awful our culture is, how sinful it is, how it's morally decaying, but Paul doesn't. He turns his attention to other people. People, he says, are worse. And he makes this turn in Romans 2 when he says this to people who all as he was preaching and and talking about Romans 1 would have been nodding their heads in agreement. He now says this to those people. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you know who Paul is talking to there? The religious. Now, there's two ways to be good enough on your own. One is to be irreligious, reject God, live how you want. Another way, the other way is to be religious. He's talking to me there, to you. Because yes, listen, our culture is deeply broken when it comes to sexuality. Deeply broken. Our culture is full of sexual sin. And so Christians will stand and preach that to engage in sex outside of marriage or to engage in sex of the same gender, that's sinful. Right? We preach that, and we should because the Bible does. I'm not saying we don't preach sin. But we're guilty of the same things. The church is guilty of the same sexual sin that our culture is. Whether it's lust whether it's pornography, whether it's that we use sex not to serve our spouse, but as a selfish means to our own ends, we are guilty of the same things. And that none of us in this room can stand before God and say, God, yes, I am 100% sexually pure. You have nothing against me in that respect. And so we're guilty of the same things we preach. Or, or take greed. That I've heard, I hear Christians often complain of greedy politicians or or, or corporate um, businesses that, that, that are run by greed, or of people who game the political system and, and get money off of welfare and live that way. But, but which of us is willing to stand before God and say, there's no greed in my heart. I am as generous as I should be. I am as generous as you, God. 
or take hostility. Yes, we live in a culture hostile to us, and we return the favor. I remember being a senior in high school, I was, I was really excited to go to school. I was really idealistic. I was really arrogant. I mean, that was a lot of things, but, but we were excited. I had a number of friends, and we had seen friends of ours come to faith in Christ. We were excited to go to our high school for that senior year, and so our church had a prayer service to, to send us out, sort of. But what it was, really, was just a rant, a long rant against the public schools. And a woman got up and, and, and just said, it's a shame God has left our schools. I was like, I didn't realize God was that soft. He was that easy to talk out of leaving somewhere. And we talk like that all the, the, all the time, like God abandons people. Like he leaves. Like if, if someone does something that's just a little bit offensive to him, he gets so mad he just abandons them and that's it. That's how we preach so often. And yet that very preaching just reveals God should do the same thing to us because we're guilty of all of the same things. Unless you're willing to stand before God and say, God, I am perfect in your sight. I am righteous. I have done no wrong. Unless you're willing to say that, then every time we preach sin, we preach it to ourselves first, or at least we should. See, there's two ways to be good enough on your own. One is to say, to be irreligious, to, to say, I don't need God. The other is to say, I'm better than those people. That yes, our culture's falling apart, but I'm the answer, and they're the problem. And Paul says, no, we're all the problem. Every last one of us. Because we're not good enough on our own. See, I love the Bible. I've given my life to preach this book. This book is, is the centerpiece of, of everything that I try and do with my life. But this book condemns me every day of my life. It tells me to love my enemies. But I just keep wanting to see their ruin. It tells me to defend the fatherless and the widow. But I'm just too busy. It tells me to give generously of myself because God has given generously to me, but I'm too selfish. It tells me to forgive my enemies, but I can't. That if you read this book very long, it will only show you how far you fall short. Because what Paul says in Romans 3.23, what we read, is not that all people fall short of being good people. Decent moral folks. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is we all fall short of the glory of God. That me, a human being made in his image, was not meant just to be a nice, decent person. I was meant to be generous because the God who made me is generous and I'm made in his image. That I was to love my enemies because the God who made me loves his enemies and dies for them. That I'm not just called to be a decent person, better than most people. I'm called to image the very glory of God with every ounce of my life. And I don't. Because I'm not good enough. And neither are you. And so that's the lie we tell ourselves, is that I'm good enough on my own. And so as a pastor, as hard as I try, and as hard as I work, I have the same status before God that anyone else has, which is not a good status. And it's the same, the same is true for you. You do not stand before God better than anyone. And if you think that you do, then you're stuck at Romans 3.10 and you can't get to the good news of Romans 3.21-26. 
And if you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're in more of the irreligious camp, you say, but God has such ridiculous standards in some respects. He just seems so backwards. The Bible says such strange things. Just know that if Paul's right, if no one seeks God, then of course you're going to think things that God says or things that that God would have you do are going to be backwards. Of course you would think that because you're lost. You're on the the wrong path, rocking in the wrong direction. And so before you discard everything I'm saying, don't just get stuck at Romans 3.10. Move to where Paul is moving. And so that's the lie we tell ourselves. But second, there's this lie we believe about God. See, all human beings have two things in common. One is that we, we, all, um, we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all, we're all sinners. The, the second thing, then, is that we all are full of shame and guilt. We all wrestle with shame and guilt. The only human beings that never wrestle with shame and guilt are sociopaths. So if you don't wrestle with shame and guilt, you see where I'm going with that. (laughs) We all wrestle with shame and guilt. All of us, every last one. That maybe your marriage is falling apart and you're too ashamed to tell anyone. Maybe every day you feel like you're not the parent you should be or could be. And you just feel guilty. Or maybe your career was advancing and then you got laid off. And suddenly now a a life that looked good looks bad. See, what's what's, what's so hard about being human is, is not just that we wrestle with guilt and shame that we deserve for things we have done. It's also we wrestle with guilt and shame for things we shouldn't feel guilt or shame for. That we're just a mess. And so there's two ways out of this. There's two paths out of of, of this guilt and shame we all are are weighed under. The first one, the first path out of that, which isn't really a path out of it, but I'll I'll just call it the Lady Gaga path. That, That our culture through music, movies, television is constantly giving us this message, love yourself, accept yourself, be true to yourself, forgive yourself. Right? That is what half of my Facebook feed is, and it's really annoying. Get tired of it. Or Lady Gaga, she puts it like this. And no, I'm not going to sing like Lady Gaga. Her lyrics to her song, Born This Way, I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. When I hear that, I just have to ask, why does anyone have to tell us to love ourselves? Shouldn't that be easy? Why do we need Lady Gaga to tell me that? The reason is because we're under guilt and shame. And so no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we do well, we always sense we're not what we should be. Because we need affirmation from outside ourselves. We can't just tell ourselves we love ourselves enough and that be enough. It's not. And so we look for affirmation in all sorts of places. We look for it in, in sex, and then we get dumped, or our spouse abandons us, or our spouse just ignores us. We look for it in food. Some people starving themselves, so they think they can look in the mirror and see something acceptable. Others just keep eating, because that's the one thing that will always accept you. And we're looking for acceptance in all kinds of places. Because we need affirmation outside of ourselves. And the truth is, this this path may work for a while. It it may work for seasons, but it won't ultimately work. 
Because you always have to earn your self-acceptance. You always have to earn your self-love. And that is a tiring process. And there will come a day when you just don't have it in you. When you just don't have the capacity to love or to forgive what you've done. Or when the guilt is, is, is too real, too deep. Not just from ourselves. I think that's a real sense in which Satan, which just means accuser, comes into our lives and says, you're not good enough. You're a mistake. That, that you can try and love yourself. I'm telling you, there will be days when you cannot. And so we need another path. But the problem is, the path that God provides is, is one we hate. We hate for a number of reasons. But the first is especially offensive to our culture. And that is, the, the only way to really be freed of guilt and shame is, is the blood of Jesus. That's it. And that Paul uses this phrase in verse 25, that Christ Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, I know that's a word we use all the time, propitiation, right? But that's, that's the thing that, that's deeply offensive to, to many of us, to our culture. That what this means is that God is angry that I don't seek him. He's angry that you're not righteous, that you do not seek him, that you are not good. And his anger and his wrath then sits over us because we've taken things he's given to us, our bodies, our hands, our mouths, our eyes, our ears, and we use things, we use ourselves made in the image of God to not glorify God, but to glorify ourselves, to slander others, to gossip, to sin, to live life how we wanted to. And so we've taken this image, this 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 human being that God has made and we do with it what we want. This is where people say, but, but Tim, that's so repressive. We need a God of love, not a God of anger. Right? That, 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 that's why people feel guilty and shame is because people like you, preachers, keep talking about sin and blood all the time. And listen, I, I agree with a part of that because there are some Christians that talk as if they're the only ones Jesus didn't die for. And the wrath of God is certainly on you, but it's not on me. I don't know what your problem is. Christians act like that. And, and that is not what the gospel is, is saying. But understand, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is hate or indifference. That if God did not love us, he would let us walk lost on our paths into destruction. If God really hated us, he'd be indifferent to us, but he's not. He sees what we've done with his image, and he hates that because he has more for us. That anger is an expression of love. And the more you love something, the more likely you are to get angry when someone hurts, damages, or abuses it. And for example, let's say there's a Sunday after church that you just thought, you just didn't like Nathan's sermon. It wasn't good. Enough for you, at least. And so you come up, and you're going to let him know. You're going to tell them, well, you didn't do this, and you didn't say that, and you didn't do this. And so you just let him have it. And then to voice your displeasure, you dump your cold coffee on him. Just so he can have an image of how dis displeased you are. Right? Listen, I really like Nathan. He's great to work with. I love him as a brother in Christ. And I'll probably be angry for a couple hours. And then a football game will be on, and I'll forget about it. Right? I'll go to bed. I'll sleep fine that night. But if you hurt my wife or my son... You come after them, and I won't sleep. There will be an anger there for injustice, for wrong. See, understand that because God's anger is over 
our sin does not mean God does not love you. It means he does love you. He's not indifferent. And he's trying to stop you from walking the wrong direction. And he's angry that you won't turn around. And we hate that. Because Jesus has to be our propitiation. And that's ultimately why we are full of shame and guilt. As we do sins, we're cut off from God. That we're lost. That we're not in the acceptance that we should be. And so we end up with this lie that we tell ourselves, which is that no one, especially not God, would ever accept me. We wrestle with that. We think there is no way, with all this guilt and shame I carry, that God will accept me. But there's the shocking truth as Paul gets to what God has done in response to our condition. See, in that jungle in Panama, we kept walking in the wrong direction for several minutes. We kept trying to convince ourselves that, that we weren't lost, right? Oh, that tree looks familiar. Yeah. We, we said all sorts of things. Until finally it was just clear, we, we saw a long stretch of path and we didn't see anyone. And so we, we did what anyone should do at that point. We just sat down, stopped moving. Because we weren't sure if we went forward, if we'd be going in the wrong direction. And we weren't sure if we went backward, we'd be going in the wrong direction. And we had no GPS, we had no phone, we had no, no map. We were lost. I've never felt in those few minutes more desperation. Of having no idea which way to turn, no idea which way to go, no idea how I was going to get out of this mess. And then I heard, we heard the voices of those looking for us. You see, because the only way you're lost is if no one's looking for you. And the only way you'll never be accepted is if God doesn't accept you. And the only way you'll ever be weighed down by guilt and shame is, there's no, is if there's no one that can take it from you. And that's what Paul gets to, the shocking truth that while no one seeks God, God seeks everyone. And I realize that, again, it's, it's difficult to believe that God can be angry at our sin, at our condition. But that's only half the story. The, the other half of the story is in verse 26, which Paul says that Jesus was put on the cross. He died for our sins to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? That God is, is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, first, God is just. Because you see, in the, in the whole Old Testament, God says basically, he says a lot of things, but he says two things essentially. One, he says, I love you. You're my people. I'm bringing you in as if you're my own children. I love you, will redeem you. I, 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 will, I will give myself to you. But then on the other side of it, God says, but if you sin, if you rebel against me, if you walk away from me, understand, I will punish you. And so there's this tension all through the Old Testament of, okay, well, how does God both love people and both be angry and punish them? And so the, the whole Old Testament has the sacrificial system where God told his people, if you sin, bring an animal and sacrifice it or bring a grain offering and, and, and give it to me. And, and when you do, you'll be right. We'll be right. But you have to wonder, how does that make you right before God? 
How can I come before God and say, well, here's some cereal, and we're okay now, right? How does that work? It doesn't. And that's why Paul says, in the past, God had, had overlooked sin, essentially. And in Jesus, that day stops. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.21, I love these two words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. See, Paul begins this argument by saying there's no one righteous. No one stands before God in the right. No one does good. That's where Paul starts. No one seeks God. And then he comes down and he says, but now there's a new righteousness. There's a new way to stand before God. There's a new way to come into his presence and be right and be, and be whole to be free of guilt and shame. And it's not, it's not cereal offerings. It's not by offering an animal sacrifice. It's because Jesus shed his blood for you. And so you can now stand before God, right and whole. See, I know we, we don't like the idea of the wrath of God, but understand the wrath of God is not coming for you. It came first for Jesus, for his own son. And that changes everything. Because God is not just some angry God flying off the handle, just mad at you, pointing out everything you do wrong, talking about all all that, that you are not, weighing on more guilt and more shame. No, his wrath comes for his son, not for you. And, And Paul says, and what that means is then you can now be righteous before God. Because your guilt, your shame, your sin, your unrighteousness is on Jesus. It's on his cross. It's not on you anymore. That's the gospel. That you are freed from guilt and shame and sin because Jesus became your propitiation. And so it's not just that God says, okay, I'll forgive you. Okay, you talked me into it. That's not what's going on. What's going on is Jesus now, if you come to him in faith, this, this almost sounds too bold, but it's, it's true. It's not just that God will forgive you. He has to forgive you. Because if your faith is in, is in Jesus in his cross, what that means is Jesus bore your price. He bore the wrath of God for you, and God has nothing on you anymore. Understand, though, that's not because you're righteous. You're not. It's because Jesus took your guilt, took your shame, took your sin, bore your, bore your, bore your debts, paid your penalty, and you're free. And God is now just to look at you and forgive you. But understand the cross means more than just forgiveness. We tend to to just leave it there, right? God forgives you. Now go. That's not what what justification is, though, which is the second thing. That God is just and he's also a justifier. That I love what Sir Marcus Lone says about justification. He says this. He says, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You've been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict, which means acceptance, which means justification, says you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. God does not just say to you, if your faith is in Jesus, you may go. You're let off the hook. See you when you die. No, it's I accept you. You're welcome. Come, be free of guilt and shame. Live with my acceptance and my affirmation and my grace every day of your life. It says come. That's what it means that God is our justifier. 
But let me ask, what, what could you do to earn a place at God's table? Read your Bible more? Pray more? Stop cussing? We come to God's table with scraps. And he's already prepared a feast. He's already accepted you. Quit trying to earn that. Quit trying to, 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 to live your life as if you haven't won that. Because if your faith is in Jesus, it's there. He accepts you. He welcomes you in. He is your justifier. And he accepts you fully. See, no one seeks God, but God seeks everyone. He hunts us down on those paths we're on, paths walking away from him in the opposite direction to bring us home. But here's where the problem is. Because we don't like what it means for us to be saved or what, it, what we have to do to be saved, which is faith. Because we hate what faith requires, which is nothing. For one, we want to bring God our scraps and say, see God, I do this. I'm better than those people. You should accept me because I'm not like them. We do that, right? Or some of us really do think we're good. We really do think we're better. We really do think that if we stood in God's presence, he should accept us. Which again means you're stuck at Romans 3.10 and you're not ready to hear what the cross is really saying to you. See, faith requires nothing. And this means three things for us. The first, it means you're worse than you ever feared. It means you're worse probably than the worst person you know. Now think of the most immoral, terrible Worst enemy, terrible, you know, just awful human being you can think of. And just realize you stand before God equal to them. Maybe worse. Because the, the one thing that we have as religious people is we have this book that tells us how to live and we don't do it. Really, it's the one thing to just sin and think that's a good way to live and do it. It's another thing to know sin is wrong and to do it anyway. See, that we are worse than we ever feared. And if this is true, that means you can never look on another human being with superiority ever again. That you were saved at the cost of another. You were saved at the suffering of another. That someone else who was innocent died so you could stand before God, just and right and whole. And if, if that comes into our hearts, it should make the church the most open, affirming, loving, gracious place in the world. Understand that that doesn't mean we do not preach sin or we don't say that certain things are wrong. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is every time I start talking about sin, I realize I'm first in line. I'm guilty. And I can never talk as if I stand uncondemned and others do. And I'm worse than, than I ever feared. For I was blind, but God gave me sight. And I was deaf. God, let me hear. I was lame. God, let me walk. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I was lost on a path headed for destruction. And he chased me down and brought me home. And there's nothing more ridiculous than a deaf, dumb, blind, lame, lost person telling other people they're sinners and I'm not. We're worse than we feared. But we are more loved than we know. That I love in verses 25 and 26, Paul uses this word, which is translated to show. 
that God wanted to make a demonstration to us that he loved us. Because I think he knew none of us would believe it, right? We're, we're, we're too bared down with, with guilt and shame that, that for God to say he loves us, we know is, is a hard thing for us to believe many days. And so he says, Paul says, okay, so God wants to show you that he's just, that he's a justifier, that he loves you. And he does so by putting his son on a cross. Now, do you doubt God loves you? Look to the cross. And do you doubt God would accept you? Look to the cross. Do you doubt that you can stand before God and worship him and pray to him and receive his acceptance and his grace and his love? If you doubt that, look to the cross, because that is God's demonstration that he loves you. And what more could he do to show you that he loves you? So we are worse than we feared. We're loved more than we know. But finally, faith means being quiet. And imagine you are walking on a path, lost in the wrong direction. Just imagine you pause and you stop. And just ask, what, what is your life walking towards? What, what are you looking for to, to give you affirmation, to give you acceptance, to say that you're good? What are you walking towards? Because I know whatever it is that you're walking towards, it won't die for you. It won't love you like Jesus loved you on a cross. It won't accept you like God can accept you because God has nothing to hold against you because he held it against Jesus. That whatever it is we're walking towards, whatever is at the end of that path, just know Jesus already went down that path. It's death, it's destruction, it's the end of life. And he went down that path and he walked that path so you wouldn't have to. So you could come and you could receive him. That if you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, do you feel that affirmation and acceptance from God? And if, it's, if not, what are you walking towards? Or if you're not a Christian and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, why wait? Do it today. Grab me, Nathan, Patrick, grab anyone. And just say, I'm tired of that. And I want to be accepted. And you will be. Not because you'll clean your act up in a few months, but because Jesus already cleaned your act up for you. He's made you righteous. He's made you whole. He's made you good. Yes, Jesus, our just, and ju- the one who makes us just and is our justifier before God. Is your faith in Jesus? Now, what are you living for? What are you walking towards? Then may we walk towards Jesus. The Jesus who made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. It was a perfect sacrifice made by a perfect person for some very imperfect people. And that by that single offering, Jesus did everything that everyone will ever need. And so friends, we can now come without hesitation into the very throne room of God, into the holy of holies. That Jesus has cleared that way by the blood of his sacrifice. And so let us finish by hearing receiving and taking in these words from the letter to the Hebrews. Let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil, and an evil, our hearts sprinkled free from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. 
But let us hold fast to the confession of our faith with hope, without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful.